Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity. Both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Stephanie Powell-Baxter, a professional dancer and choreographer who's worked on the likes of Strictly Come Dancing for a number of years. She performs in West End musicals and she answers questions from a man with the rhythm of a 1980s action figure. Hello and welcome to the show, how are you doing? I hope you're well, I hope you're handling this little late heat wave we're having in the UK here, if that's where you're listening from. I'm doing all right until about 2pm and then the studio turns into a greenhouse and then I just melt with a fan a couple of yards from my face and do the best to wring what's left of my fatigued twin parenthood brain. (laughs) I hope you're well, I hope things are good. What have you been up to? Let me know. Hello at bentallon.com on the email, at bentallon on the social media. So I'm bringing you a dancer today. Um, Stephanie is awesome. I'm a friend of hers. I've watched with admiration over the years as she's out time and time again on Strictly Come Dancing, doing her thing, performing in West End musicals, in films. She was in Snow White the Huntsman recently, um, major, major films. She's bags of talent. She's got bags of talent and she's brilliant. She's very funny. She's got some great stories about the lifestyle of a professional dancer. And as you guys know, I like to roam far and wide with my explorations of creativity. Ultimately, I always end up gravitating back towards artists and designers and illustrators, but I love to just feed that ecosystem of perspectives on creativity because it's so important to get outside of our bubbles. Otherwise, we become at risk to repetition and, um, you know, I suppose, what's the way to put it? It's not diminishing returns on ideas, but we we do get into tropes and comfort zones. I find I do that personally. If I don't fill my sphere of influences with difference and new ideas, then invariably I end up, you know, going back to old tricks and kind of repeating what's worked for me before. And I think that does ultimately um, become diminishing returns, you know, when it comes to creativity. So, of course, it depends on value you put on that. Maybe these more lateral episodes are not for you if so that's fine but i think you're gonna have fun with stephanie big thank you to the founding sponsor of the show the wonderful illustration x go and check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now illustrationx.com some great work on there so much good stuff and their news section is fantastic they're a registered b corp they're doing good work protecting us with ip against the likes of ai at the moment in the industry they're always working on the front lines so go and check them out Hit them up on social. We are Illustration X on Instagram, I believe. Anyway, I hope you guys are well. I've got Stefan Sagmeister coming up on the show. Very, very excited about that. That's a big one, and that's on October the 5th. It's a day after the release of his brand new book, Now is Better. 
by Fiden Press. Um, it's absolutely beautiful, and it's a tonic for these times. I had a chat with his PR, and they sent me the book, and it's really, really magic. It's a great idea. It's a kind of artistic, graphical, statistical representation of the data, looking at the world from a longer viewpoint, a longer-term view, with the idea being that on so many fronts now is the time to be alive because, you know, all the things you think of, like disease and uh, democracies and all these things, we feel like everything's in disrepair and is a very doom and gloom mindset when you look at social media and all this alarmist news which is designed to make us feel down and broken and everything else. But what Stefan wanted to do after a very specific conversation, which we will cover on the show and I won't spoil now, is to just pull focus and to get some sense that actually we have some major, major battles on our hands, which he doesn't shy away from in the book. But really, when you look at a lot of it, it's a good time to be alive and we are far better positioned to address the the challenges that we face from a from a baseline optimism of optimism, you know? I had this, I've talked about it and I'm not going to bang on about it today, but I had a real low myself recently, getting really down about the state of affairs, especially as I was fatigued and exhausted as a new parent. But it was a change in thought processes and a little perspective that helped me to sort of pull out of that a little bit. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I have bad days still, but I'm way better and I'm firing creatively a lot more effectively because I've got a bit of optimism and a bit of perspective back. And this book is just not only beautiful to hold and look at, but it does a great job of that. So I'm not going to go on about Stefan today because today's about Stephanie. But, I mean, to get Sagmeister on the show, I'm not going to lie. I was, you know, I'm an illustrator who grew up admiring Stefan's work and his bold creativity. So to get to talk for an hour with him was awesome and I'm not going to spoil it yet but we might have a little something else to announce also uh, might not be the last time we're going to talk and it might be live we'll cross that bridge when we come to it anyway I hope you're well like I said get in touch if you want to give me a feedback on the show but I've banged on for long enough enjoy this conversation about moving and movement and moving with Stephanie Powell Baxter professional dancer and choreographer I mean what is your background what I could paint as a picture of childhood and and what that looked like for you um, eldest of three children, um, span, there's a five year age gap between, um, all of us. So I don't, um, grew up in Poole in Dorset, very beautiful harbour and sort of seaside place to grow up. Was actually born in Hereford. Um, but my mum and dad moved to Poole. Um, my grandfather, well, my, so officially my step-grandfather, my mother's stepdad, was in the SAS um, and he had a friend down in Poole. Um, and uh, while my mum and dad were holidaying down there, they saw an advert in the local paper for an uh, engineer that could be trained. And my mum and dad went, let's just move. My mum's mum is um, Brazilian Portuguese and she's a bit mental. So they kind of did it to escape her, really. Oh, wow. Um, they moved to the south coast. Um, so they had no family, no support at all, like zero. Um, so it's just the five of us, really. Um, we saw my dad's brother. Um, he didn't live too far away, um, but that was it. Just a very small family unit. Um, and as far as I know, with regard to starting dancing, um, my mum made lots of friends at local playgroups 
all other people that had moved there that didn't have any family as well. Um, and one of the mums was just sending her daughter to ballet. Mm. Um, just tennis on silence. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And I think I had a slightly, one of my feet was slightly turned in and I thought it would probably be good for them to force them out the other way. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there's a little, little uh, physical side to that as well. Oh, that's really interesting. SAS as well. That's the um, oh yeah, yeah. So uh, it's uh, he was a very remarkable man. Never got to meet him. He passed away when my mum was pregnant with me. Um, but he's got a chapter in the SAS um, Unsung Heroes book that was written by Pete Scully. Um, his name's Steve Callan, and he, in his later years, became part of the ops team, and he basically developed the first Shrike Exploder. Wow. So <laughs> it's really awesome. So, uh, wow. so he was one of his SAS colleagues, Spike, that lived down in Poole, and that's how we came to sort of be down there and grow up down there. But, yeah, I mean, I've had a fantastic upbringing by the seaside, like what? You can't get more of a beautiful place than that. Yeah. Obviously missed very much having the presence of other family, but also gave, became a really tight unit. And as a consequence of me going dancing, my sister had to go dancing and my brother had to go dancing because my dad um, my dad worked 12-hour days, six days a week um, as an engineer. So mum had to walk us where we had to get to because she didn't drive. So we all ended up with the same hobby. And I don't know if you know, but my brother is also in the industry. He is a choreographer as well. I didn't know. Laura did mention this briefly, yeah. So I, I got a snippet of it. Well, yeah, no, we haven't talked about it. So that's interesting. So I was going to ask you, you know, the, the three of you, I mean, just as a father of twins, you know, I think maybe some people would assume that twins might have a lot of similarities, and I'm sure that a lot do, but mine are chalk and cheese in a lot of regards. Yeah. Um, and so I find that interesting. So so I don't know how different the three of you were, but, but what was, like, did any of you take to dancing more? Were any, would you say that any of you as ch as children, as personalities, were particularly, I don't know, conducive in any, any way to kind of to, to sport or to athletic things? Um, I think we were all very active. And then my dad sort of encouraged my brother with, his dad's a Leeds fan, by the way. My dad um, encouraged my brother with sort of football and he played it for a bit, but very much it was dance was a cheap hobby. It was just in a little church hall um, uh, and, yeah, so it was affordable and we were all going to the same place. So really that's all we did. You start off with one discipline, then you add on the next one because it's only a couple of pounds for that class. You know, you start with ballet, it was tap, modern, jazz, um, and the list just grew and grew and grew. And we stayed at this little school in this little church hall until I was about, I think, about 11. Um, and then um, we sort of moved to quite an elitist school um, where you had to audition to get in. But all three of us were always really good at what we did. Um, later on, when I was about 12, I started to learn ballroom dancing. I just decided I wanted to do it. So my mum said to me, well, if you want to go and do it, you can phone up yourself and organise your own lessons. Fantastic. So I did. At 11 years old, I picked up the phone to in the yellow pages and circled all the different dance schools I could find and called up and asked how much they were and 
where they were and everything. And then I fashioned that. And again, brother and sister followed suit with that. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and sister ended up dancing together because they are just over two years apart. Mm-hmm. So I was, I've got the bigger gap for me. And then I ended up in a, an all girl pairing. Ah. <laughs> um, so I did that. So we started to learn ballroom dancing as well. Um, was my brother then followed me to the same theatre college. Um, and then when he graduated, I was in a West End show and I was um, a dance captain, which is um, someone that's kind of in charge of keeping the choreography correct as the uh, person who created it um, uh, would want it to be. And as that part of that job, we have to audition for new candidates. So um, I auditioned my brother and then uh, he had the job. <laughs> so he had his first job with me in a big Western show. Wow. And, uh, how how were you academically at school? Uh, I went to grammar school. Um, I really loved school. I was really happy at school, aside from spats of you know the kind of problems you can imagine of being in an all-girls school um secondary school that is just went to a standard uh primary school um took my 11 plus went to my uh parkstone grammar school you know it's very polite long socks long skirts kind of no graffiti in the toilets no smoking anywhere kind of school um you know mm. really I ask because there's quite a strong thread in the questions that I want to ask and the things I want to talk to you about, about um, the link between um, arts like dance, physical, you know, pursuits and the mind and and academic intelligence, because there's this big disconnect historically and, and to this day between things like dance and drama. I recently interviewed a, a local last that I met on the dog walk, who is a drama and English teacher at, um, at a secondary school with quite a high percentage of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who okay. can be awesome and military kids. And even though she only gets to teach dance and drama once every fortnight for one hour, she said they just come alive. Those kids who are quite troublesome and quite naughty come alive in those lessons. And to, to me, to someone who's passionate about creativity and has studied it quite in depth now for a long time, it, it really didn't come as a surprise to me. But Sir Ken Robinson writes at length about dance in particular as a fantastic um, way, you know, a, a different form of intelligence and education. And something to enliven the mind and that's why i ask about the academic side of things not that you in isolation would be you know um a beacon of everything that's great about the link between the two however i do think there's you know i i did a recent episode on this about the benefits of physical activity and sharpness of mind and, and cognitive function and the rest of it because mm-hmm. there's lots of studies out there to show that when kids engage with something like dance even if it's just for a short period each week there is gr- like much greater um strength in their relationships in their collaboration in their engagement with other subjects so that the results in arithmetic and in english and maths went through the roof and this is you know there's lots of things that ken writes about so that's why i asked i wondered if you had any kind of input on that um i mean i you know i went to a, uh i did very well in my exams um considering i was somebody that spent most of my time practicing dancing and not revising um you know and the same obviously with my with my brother 
um, you know, to come out with, I came out with nine A's and a B at GCSEs, you know, and that wasn't my focus. Um, and much to the school's dismay, put it that way. Um, at my school, they offered um, they offered drama, they offered theatre studies at both GCSE and A-level, and we were allowed to mix with the boys' school. Um, I think that it's so interesting to hear about all those things. I'd like to do some more reading on that. I did um, my dissertation. I did it to do with dance intelligence, actually, with the different types of coordination that you need and don't need to be a dancer. For example, I am incredibly kinesthetically aware of my own body in space, of other bodies in proximity to me, so that we can, you know, hold formations and patterns and change in the blink of an eye. But if you give me something in my hand and something to hit it with, I've got no coordination at all. Can't can't do it. And so I looked at a lot, a lot of studies actually into that, and it just shows there's a certain type of intelligence that's needed for dance and for um, you know solo sports like gymnastics that necessarily you wouldn't need for other sports. So I think you're you know so right that it's definitely got its own. Um, it, it's own sort of education pathway with what's needed for it. Um, I feel like all my friends were my dancing friends. Like I, I didn't, not that I didn't need my school friends. I had friends at school as well, um, but I forged really strong relationships with the people that I went to dancing with. And there was just, I don't know whether it's because you, practice together you rehearse together you know you express together um there's no judgment when some everyone does things slightly differently when you learn dance you learn the syllabus um and you, 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 there's a correct way to do that syllabus but within that syllabus obviously there's artistry mm-hmm. um and everyone will express that slightly differently um I, I think it's a, a really wonderful place to be where there's just acceptance and whether it's everyone's equal in that room, you have no idea of anyone's how much money they had or any of those things. Cause you had to stand, everyone just wore the same uniform, just like school, you wear a uniform and that's it. When you've got that uniform, that's all you need. Yeah. That's, that, that's really interesting because there's, um, so one of there's two books that, well, I've just finished reading, out of our minds, the power of being of creativity by Ken Robinson, and he sadly passed away the other year. But he, and I'm also reading one now at the moment called "You, Your Child, and School," and it's about you know education, but it's about the broader you know what education should be and can be, and and sometimes is, but is often not in the current system. And one of the stories he tells in one of his books is about an organisation in Bradford called Dance United. And they run a programme called the Academy. I've got it written down here. So it's a dance-based education programme as an option for young offenders in the criminal justice system, designed for young people who have failed in conventional education settings and who may be offenders or at serious risk of offending. And their success rates are phenomenal. So it's a 25-week programme. And it's, you know, it's rigorous. It's to a professional level. And some of the kids who turn up in this piece, you know, it says can barely communicate, you know, hiding behind their hair, very, very withdrawn from society and and, and very troubled backgrounds, a lack of kindness from adults in their life. And the, the results are phenomenal from the kids that come out the other end of this as, as actually, you know, reformed people. 
And a lot of this is attributed to them um, being reminded of their innate capacity to succeed, you know, not just in dance. I mean, some of them do go on to pursue careers in dance and work in that field. But I think, you know, one of his points is that we don't look at maths in school and go, it's a failure if, uh, you know, three people out of a maths class don't become mathematicians. No, that's that's nonsense. It's it's, for, it's a broader life skill. Exactly. So, so why dance, his point, is, is seen any differently? Because it's just this different form of intelligence, despite all these results of it being teaching people discipline, collaboration, you know, all these critical life skills to think that people then go and look at it and go oh but who's going to do dance as a career it's like it's such a luddite you know view i think it also comes from obviously sort of studying more the history of dance where it came from with vaudeville it was mainly prostitutes it came from people women dressing as they did and selling their bodies on the stage you know it came from that level you know, obviously there was dance happening within, you know, balls within that kind of society, but it was different. But that performance element of dance was kind of dragged out of the gutter. Mm. Um, and I don't know what it's kind of viewed, unless it's, you know, royal ballet or opera, it's not viewed in that same, that's the highbrow side of those things. Whereas it's not, it's not viewed the same. And I think it's from its roots and people's opinions of, that that have kind of just trickled through society um you know also for example on jobs um say someone has a job and they need two singers and they need an ensemble of eight dancers the singers will be paid twice what the dancers are paid mm, okay just had a situation on the snow white film that i filmed on now within film you normally have your actors your paid actors whether they're leading supporting actors you know supporting roles um smaller parts you also have what are called extras but they're now called um they're not allowed to be called extras anymore they're called supporting actors essays and essays are usually they're very colorful people they're people that are happy to sit around on a film set all day in all sort of conditions not necessarily being treated that well in all honesty they get their their food provided and stuff and they enjoy the, a lot of people enjoy the, having talked to a lot of them having lots of time on set they just enjoy the experience of being there and seeing famous actors and you know but they're they're kind of like film cattle basically the filler um and there's this thing where suddenly you're like on snow white you've got uh 150 dancers have been employed dancers of incredible caliber um and some of the film staff have no idea how to treat something that's in between so you kind of got bundled by certain members of staff as if you were a supporting artist not that you're a professional person that's providing an exceptional service you, you know you're not there's something called craft you're not allowed to use the craft thing for your drinks um, you're not allowed to do certain things as a dancer. But the stunt team, that's different. They have their own space. So there's, it's still now, we're still fighting. Like we had to get our union representative. There weren't enough toilets on the side of the set. Like it's really pitiful stuff, you know. And it's not stemming from the person that's creating our choreography. Mm. 
it's stemming from the lack of understanding from the production staff on who we as a collective of dancers are. Mm -hmm. Some of the most successful um, commercial and theatre performers of the last, you know, decade in this film, like royalty, and being treated the same as somebody with no training, who come, who's generally people think they're nuts, and they come and sit on a film set all day. Um, I had one exchange with one supporting artist to give you a kind of a flavour of their sort of type of human, and he was given a plastic baby to hold in a village scene. But he decided because it wasn't the same colour as his skin that he would put the mud from the floor all over the baby. Oh, my God. It wasn't the right colour. And then after a while, I thought, oh, I don't think I wanted it. So then proceeded to bother the makeup artists that were on set to service everyone to ask if they could clean the baby. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So dancers were being treated as if, you know, people that have sacrificed their entire lives for their training, you know. Um, Yeah, it's, it's hard to see how that will change and it's actually the same for choreographers you see all these big musical movies that come out like Matilda's just come out you see Matthew Walker's director everywhere Matthew Walker's didn't do any of those musical scenes Hmm. any of them the choreographer did them but where's their name nowhere so yeah you see you see it in a lot of industries I mean in in my world you know there's been campaigns to get the illustrator of, of children's books you know, name on the cover next to the author, you know, when you look at the... Well, it should be. It's all part of a picture book. Of course. And it's, you know, you you could argue it's more important than the writing. I mean, I, I think it's quite equal in a lot of cases, but invariably you get some that are very labour-intensive on the, on the visual side of things. And yeah. But this is, I suppose, you get these hierarchical injustices in, in, in a lot of industries. But um, was there ever... was Did you ever question... Um, was it was it a constant? I mean, obviously, dance was a constant. Was there ever a time when you second guessed that it might be a career, or, or was it actually something you didn't consider as a career for a long time? Oh, I just wanted to do it. That's the one thing I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed school, of course, but I just there was just something that I can't get that feeling anywhere else. Mm. You know, I had loads of opportunities to try lots of different sports at school. Um, but there's nothing that compared to that. Um, and I love to be on stage and I love to be, um, yeah, I just couldn't get that that feeling replicated anywhere else. And I thought, if I can do this. And once I'd moved to the more elitist school in Southampton, so sort of like 30-minute drive away, I would get the train by myself after school to go there to um train and then come home I saw other people at my school that would go on to a a college so there was always a a way forward I could always see a way forwards Um, when I had my careers interview um, at school they asked what I wanted to do and I said dance and they said no what do you want to actually do for a career and I said well that's what I'd like to do (laughs) so um my theatre studies teacher was amazing. She was great. So I couldn't do dance GCSE, but I could do PE, and part of that was dance. Um, I did drama, 
And I'm actually still in touch with my teacher now from my secondary school. Wow. She was a very special human. Um, really, really encouraging. Um, so I always saw a way forwards and I kind of was like, well, seems to be going okay. So I'll just keep going and I keep going with that feeling. And mm. Yeah, I'm very just, yeah, just following the passion. I think it's wonderful when you hear stories like that because, you know, all too often you hear people challenged on it, much like the, your story there about, you know, people scratching their head that you might want to do this thing that doesn't have a guarantee. Yeah. Um, I mean, my mum and dad did stop me from going at 16 um, to theatre school. Hmm. Um, they, because I'd show promise in academic, they wanted me to get my A-levels, um, which I did. <laughs> and then went and did a um, um, a degree at theatre school instead. Um, I never felt that they didn't. That was the only time I felt they didn't want me to go was when they wanted me to stay for my A levels. But they kind of were like, you know, do whatever. And my mum and dad came from backgrounds where my dad grew up with his dad and his brother. His mum passed away when he was four, so he grew up in a prefab in Hereford, um, very poor working class you know, uh, family, I suppose, him and his dad and his brother. My mum never was allowed any hobbies. Mm. So she, I think they went out of their way. Um, it's only now really I'm a parent that I realised they just sacrificed their social life, sacrificed everything to make sure that we could do what we wanted to do. Um, you know, so I there was never really a question in it. Do you think that? Do you think that that start so then got that kind of almost detour? Do you think that had a bearing, positive or negative, on 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 the trajectory? I mean, you know, we are we are where we are, and it's not. I don't think you should ever sort of look back and go, "Well, oh God, I wish it had been different." But I ask that because I had to stay on at school to get my art GCSE an extra year because I had still very. I, Cal will tell you I'm incredibly average at football, less than, and I still. I was always a dreamer, so I still believed I could play for Leeds United right up until GCSE PE, the end of. So I'd not okay. done that. And by the time reality kicked in, it was, okay, shit, I better stay on an extra year to get this art GCSE. And then I had a false start. Well, not a false start, but I did a year of a graphic media communications degree at Bradford before realising that I needed to go down a more specialised illustration route. Okay. But the fact that when I arrived at Preston at 20 and not 18, I was in a slightly more mature headspace. I'd got two years of drinking on the weekends out of my system. I felt, you know, I was a little more red, red receptive to that. Yes, absolutely. And for me, I see that as a positive, whereas, you know, maybe some people might have looked and, and seen that as a kind of, you know, oh, God, he's had to stay back a year at school. It's, you know, it's, it's damning and all that. I think it's a life experience. I, I completely agree. So I went at... Um, 18, but my brother actually went at 16. He, they, for some reason, same rules didn't apply to him, but you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the theme growing up. Um, so no, I was glad because going to coming from a little seaside town and going to live on the zone five on the border of Kent, London, I feel like. It was a lot easier for those of us that were on the degree because you were old enough to do all the extra things you wanted to do. Um, whereas going at 16, you saw some of the others have, they miss their families a lot more, you know, two years less life experience. Um, 
And I guess it taught me to stick at something like with my A-levels and just follow it through and do it and get that life experience there. And I think also there was that fear with me because I was a girl and the industry is overrun with more females wanting to do it that they just wanted me to have something to fall back on. Because when I went to theatre, when I went to stage school, they I had to get a scholarship. I couldn't go. The you had your university fees, which were well, I think they were like one thousand one hundred pounds a year at the time, which I got a student loan for. Um, but the fees for stage school were ten grand a year at that point. So I had to get a scholarship. So um, I had to complete a full UCAS, um, which in which I applied to study sports science, um, and. Uh, at various universities, just in case. Um, but this scholarship came through and, um, yeah, I'm thankful that they made me stay on. Yeah. There was, a, you know, I was able to work. So I was able to work while I did my studies to get myself money, whereas if going at 16, you know, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it was the best thing. And also my brother, by the time he got, he stopped performing earlier because he was done because he'd been doing it since he was so young, you know, he came out of college at 19 and really the last year of his college, he was so talented that he was already working at 18. But then he kind of got to 28, 29. He was like, okay, I need to move into the choreographic route. Um, So no, I think, I think it's perspective and I think it's, I feel very much the same as you. It was, it was a blessing to go that late. Yeah. It's very, um, yeah, the, the chat I had with the girl I mentioned called Abby, who's the drama teacher. Yeah. One, thing, one thing she said, um, which I found brilliant, was the kind of the initial apprehension of because when we're in the pub and this conversation came up, and the first thing I, I asked was how did the military and the kind of the naughty kids respond to the drama? And I think the other people that were there were fully expecting it to say that they hated it or it was the last thing they wanted to do. And she just went, "They love it. They they, they live for that lesson." And I wasn't surprised having read all this stuff. And she talked about how, you know, um, one of the first things she'll do is she'll get the kids to throw a chair across the room. And, you know, there's this look of shock followed by, oh, it's okay to do that. And uh, why is that? And then suddenly they're able to tell a story about themselves by in this physical manner. And she said, you know, invariably the rowdier kids are the ones that are there tapping at the door each week. And the very first interview that I did, just because we had no one else to do it, was with Danny Dyer. And he said the same thing about his acting that, you know, he was, he would bunk off school most of the time. He was from a very rough East part of London, very poor family. And, but he'd be there early for that lesson, everything. And he came alive and, you know, and and he was, he said, I don't know what I'd be doing. I don't even know if I'd be here if it wasn't for that, given, given my background and everything else. Oh, absolutely. But there was an interesting bit and it's, and, and, um, but let me see. They've got so the stat was from the there's a program called Dancing Classrooms in New York, um, and it's a similar thing to the the Dance United program. Okay, but it's more it's more that they do this stuff around the the, the school as opposed to just kids who are all already in trouble. This one's okay. more part of the curriculum, um, and ninety five percent of the teachers involved said that there was a demonstrable improvement in students' abilities to cooperate and collaborate 
following this introduction of dance into their curriculum. Um, and then in Los Angeles, they rolled it out and, and the same kind of numbers reported more acceptance and more respect for their for their peers, for their elders, for everything else. And I just, I loved hearing that because as, a, as someone who grew up playing rugby league and football and was involved in stuff outside of school, it's exactly the same thing. You learn to talk to adults that are not your parents. You learn to meet kids from different backgrounds that you might otherwise not encounter. And just from hearing your story about the, the you know, the diversity of character, whether it's supporting actors or I imagine there's a lot of loud, eccentric people, but not just loud, but a broad range of people that you work with on any given production or show. I would imagine that those kind of skills are not only vital for the job, but actually picked up on the job and through the, the art of dance. Oh, yeah, just learn. I mean, a lot of people that even the small percentage of people that, you know, so when you go to stage school, you'll get thousands of applications they'll allow maybe 400 people to audition. Um, and then when they've auditioned, they whittle that down in my year, there were 40 people. And of those 40 people in that year, probably 10 of those people will get jobs. Um, and most of the skills, like etiquette that you learn, you learn on the job. You know, you, you learn as you go. You've kind of got the basic skills of of dance and of whatever else, but actually it's actual work experience that, and some people don't even know what they're getting themselves in for. So for those 40 people, 30 of them, you know, 10 of them might have realised they want to be a teacher, they love teaching, they want to be a teacher. Some of them have realised this is not for me. This is, this is not what I expected this to be doing this all the time. Um, some people have horrendous injuries, um, is all all of all of those things that you you don't really realize what you're getting yourself in for until you're out there mm. and even some people after a year or two they don't they don't find an agent they don't get a job so they just find themselves in you know in other moving on to other pathways yeah um, and skills are transferable like a lot of people um i know go to work uh like within recruitment um anywhere whereas you know face-to-face -face kind of um interaction with people you know very personable very charming people that you know uh, if you can act you can you know i'm sure you can sell anything <laughs> well yeah and and also you know i i would imagine and you know you i mean perhaps this is just something that was already a part of your personality but you seem you know, incredibly easygoing and relaxed around people. Now, I'm not suggesting that's because of the career, but there must be an aspect of when you work in an environment that's so fast and furious and people-centric that the volume is turned down to a degree in other aspects of, of life and society. Would that be anywhere near accurate? Yeah, I think so. I think you you just get so used to interacting with people. And, the, for example, a job can be two days. A job can be a year. So if you're a freelancer... Um, then your turnover of meeting people is just constant. You know, you get so used to meeting different types of people, tolerating different types of people, navigating yourself within within that bubble and finding that dynamic quite quickly, then moving on. Like you have to be okay with not knowing what's coming next what's coming next. So I think it's only suited for certain maybe personality types and all of those things so I think yeah it's I think you 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 feel like you can transfer 
a lot of your skills and you, you have to really because if you don't have a job then for example there was an there was an agency called um, TBC and they used to um, always hire dancers that weren't working and they were an agency that distributed um, girls to sell perfume girls and, and boys to sell perfume at places like Harrods and Selfridges so only certain people passed the Harrods test. You had to look a certain way and wear certain things and do certain things. So you were always just trying to scrabble to 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 scrape money together anyhow you could. But TBC was a was a big was a big thing. They got onto this thing where they, you know, generally within the dance and theatre community, it's very, very beautiful, usually young individuals that can, you know, sell, 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 whether it's hostessing on the front door of the nightclub you know, to take people to their seats, whether it's, you know, dancing go-go within the nightclub or I think you, yeah, you have to have that fight attitude just to, you've got you to pay your rent somehow. And um, you think you, you get quite good at blagging stuff too for like maybe 50% of my uh, career has been down to timing, luck and good blag, mm-hmm. you know, what honesty. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that. I had I, just yesterday I interviewed James Brown, which was amazing for me. And I, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he was the he created Loaded Magazine and was the founding. Oh, no in, way. In the 90s. So James's story is from Leeds and he was uh, he described himself as a, a lippy kid who, you know, got by by making the older kids laugh in times when, you know, there was no Internet and a lot of time was spent. Yeah. On- and James just had a passion for music from an early age and, and made his own fanzine and learned on the job and, you know, took himself around university gigs to sell said fanzine and talk people into buying it. And he was features editor at NME by the time he was 22. Um, just by moving to London and plunging himself into the deep end and continuing to do what he did anyway, you know, went through all this meteoric publishing career. And um, he's just an incredibly nice guy to talk to, but just so many crazy stories. But I just love... And anyone I talk to, there's got to be a, a bit a large percentage of chance and hustle and 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 being. It's not so much. It's not dumb luck, but it's it's. He described you know luck as being the the perfect balance between ambition and opportunity. So it's being attuned to the possibility these things can happen, and then it's working hard and making sure you're good to go when it does happen and all. But like That's you said, there's got to be a lot of. Um, blagging i mean i've got countless stories this is not about me so i'm not going to share them all now but but i love that i, I love that side of the arts it's great it's, but, it's, a, it's strong it's a strong blag game could, you, could you do this and you're like uh yeah just making a few phone calls to a few friends looking at youtube like okay yeah I think <laughs> yeah but you know again in james's case it's like for every james brown there's probably if 49 kids who ended up either in some kind of trouble or, or unhappy in some way because because of education and society kind of not seeing intelligence as this broader sphere and it's mm-hmm. like you know it's what you said there about the kind of that environment and on and, and in, on the projects you work on when you think about the kind to this day the rigid nature of school classrooms and when you think about the the increasing numbers of kids that are diagnosed with like ADHD and things, it's like, how the hell are we not doing more to get those people moving and into into environments where they can thrive and turn that into a good thing, or at least learn to understand that there's more to life than remembering facts and knowledge? You know, absolutely. Like I went, I'm um, the class representative for Bo's class at the moment, so I help to run the WhatsApp group. <laughs> yeah um 
but I went on a trip recently to um, Windsor Castle with um, Bo's class and the whole of the year, whole of year two went. And within that class, there's 27 of them. And I say seven of them displayed what you would say is challenging behavior. But those children were so dynamic and expressive. And you think, I bet there's something inside of you that there's, you know, and some of them are funny and you you can't laugh, but they're funny. There's there's something about those children that you know if 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 the education was different, that that maybe you'd unlock something within them. You know, and in in this, I don't done a lot of teaching because I'm not a massive fan of teaching. Um, but I think it's the I think it's having t- taught professional adults most of my career to then go and teach at Mrs. Miggins's dance school down the road. Jazz every week doesn't fill me with joy, but to teach the vocabulary I've learned professionally, I love that. But there's nothing better than seeing and working with a child or a young adult within a college setting. And see them come out of themselves within within the time that you're with them. The ones that surprise you the most. There's nothing more rewarding than feeling that. And actually, myself, um, I wouldn't say I'm introverted, but I was an incredibly shy child. Mm. My hobbies were riding my bike to the library and reading. Or reading books to a friend of mine who was from a very disadvantaged background who couldn't read very well. So I would read the point horror book to her because she couldn't read it you know so that was my dance actually allowed me to have this kind of alter ego that I didn't have or I didn't feel comfortable with having um within a social environment um which was yeah which is, is, that's fascinating to me because you know there's that miss I think it's um another broad stroke another misconception or, or lazy assumption however you want to put it that it takes extroverts or it takes loud brash uncontainable people to be in a performing arts career i think i love stories like that because it just flips that on its head and it, it goes to show doesn't it that actually that's a safe space for you to let something out and this is one of the things that ken robinson flags up about why these programs are so successful because it like Abby said herself, she's completely strict with any kids acting up in those lessons because she won't have anyone snigger. And they're, they're, they're all told right from the start that they're immediately out if that happens because it has to be a safe environment for them to express in a different way. And once she said once they realise that that's the case, the guard completely drops and something much like you described there about yourself just comes out of them. Yeah, it's... Also, I think for me with dance, from speaking from a dance perspective, there's something really powerful about something being nonverbal. Because mm-hmm. sometimes as a child and as a young adult, you can't always find the words. You can't pinpoint what's making you feel a certain way. You don't really know. But to be able to, to put a piece of music on that maybe resonates with you and be able to dance it out or, you know, however you're feeling, it, there's something so incredible about that um to not have to explain not to have to use words we're using words or writing words or words all the time it was just to 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 dance to dance it um this is incredible you know it's about finding your language isn't it i i was having this conversation recently i i am i'm the least confrontational person 
your meat. You know, um, I, I, I very quickly, you know, if there's any kind of argument, I very quickly clam up. I lose my train of thought. I get the shakes. I can't do it. It's like I've been in one adult fight in my life is because somebody came at me unprovoked and it was a horrible experience. And, um, but the flip side of that is I could, you know, when I sit down, if you give me 20 minutes to write a piece, I can perfectly articulate and, and do everything that I can't do in a, in a, in a verbal or even physical setting, you know? Um, and that's wonderful because I've found my language, whether it's drawing or writing, I'm comfortable with either. Um, and that's me. And we're all like, we all have different set, you know, different kits, like almost like starter packs for personalities in that regard, I think. And, and I think what's, you know, it's, it's I've heard Dan's described as the hidden language of the soul. And, I also, as part of the research of this book, was reading about uh, the neuroscience of it, and there are strong overlaps in the areas of the brain with mathematics, dance, and speech formation, which is fascinating too. Wow! Again, because of the, the rhythms and the, and the, the you know the, the sound and the motion and all these things, and, and again, it's just it's then beggars belief that people isolate this as a hobby or a pastime or something that's not yeah. of value to these other subjects. It's so funny that you say that, actually, because I remember there was one particular show I was touring with, um, and uh, um, we went to my friend's hometown, which was Hull, and um, we we would always share, we called digs together, which is where you basically rent out rooms in people's homes, and for the week you're there. And uh, so we were staying in digs together, me and Gemma, and Gemma's friend from school came to watch the show and I remember we met him in the bar afterwards and he'd been to see the show and it was a very very physical dance show probably one of the most rewarding I've ever done utterly incredible vocally as well really hard and um he asked when he sat down for a drink he's like okay so that was really great what do you you know what do you guys work as during the day <laughs> <laughs> oh oh dear so do you think we literally just get up and go do you know what let's we'll just do this no we'll just not that, that way we'll go that way and then just like oh my gosh and, and he really wasn't trying to be rude he just didn't have any idea which i think is a little i think that's for example where talking about bringing strictly into this where it's kind of I think people have the the uh, respect for dance is increasing with shows like that because suddenly you get people that are in the public eye trying then to learn how to dance very quickly and some of them failing very miserably, which just shows you that it it, it isn't something that you just pull someone off the street and they can dance. Like it's different to singing in that way because somebody might be just be able to sing because they've been singing in church the whole life or maybe they haven't been singing and just they just that's their way that's their language of expression um but with dance you can have raw talent but you have to learn it oh my god yeah you know so i would liken it to a you know is it a craft is it considered a craft if it's not it certainly shares that 10 well i don't know how many hours in dance but you know the whole ten thousand hours to consider something a mastered craft i mean it's at the very least it's got to be that i mean yeah it should that should go without saying i mean the complexities look it's um you know and it's as physical as any sport you know you try as a female getting thrown around in the air and then as a you know as a uh, you know like as a the supporter in the lift 
being responsible for doing that, not just once, but eight times a week in front of an audience plus shows. You know, there's there's um, there's a lot to be said for the athleticism of it too and the discipline to stay within that. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, God, yeah, I would never have even doubted it. I mean, any, anything I see on the, you know, on the stage from theatre to dance, um, it just blows me. It blows my mind um, for many reasons. But the physical side of it, yeah, as someone who's done a lot of sports and has, you know, gone down the road of being completely broken after eight minutes of rugby league and then having to see an 80-minute match through and, and, and learn about the discipline of conditioning for that kind of thing. Yeah. I imagine there are a lot of parallels. But but again, in front of an audience under those bright lights and all the timing and everything that separates it perhaps from sport is just another level. Yeah, you learn very quickly. Like if you, um, I was never going to go into ballet. I was never the right uh, shape, let's say, for ballet. Um, wasn't quite sylph life enough, like enough. Um, but you get your first pair of point shoes usually around the age of eleven, where you learn to dance on your toes, and very quickly there are, you know, blood can trickle out of your shoes, and that kind of separates the people that know that there's going to be some physical hardship in along this path for those that you know, are ready to stomach it and those that are just there to enjoy so you know and also there's lots of it's different now when I trained and I'm sure before there was no sort of safeguarding in how you were spoken to yeah (laughs) you know um and I look back now and I sort of can laugh at it but it's utterly terrifying at the time I remember one ballet teacher telling me in front of we were doing a ballet piece. I was in my first year in front of third year, second year. So I was one of the very, you know, I was very young in the college. She said, darling, when you stand still, you're so beautiful. It's just when you move. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's just some of the cleaner stuff that's been said, but um, yeah. uh, (laughs) You've got to have a strong stomach, that's for sure. Yeah. that's incredible. Do you, as a parent yourself, is it you know how do you feel about the education ahead of your kids? Like, does does the stuff we've discussed concern you, or is it? Do you just feel happy that you're aware of it as, as someone who's who's seen a different way? I feel like I counteract school with filling my children's lives with hobbies and expressive outlets, um, but I was naturally gravitated towards martial arts. I don't know with that because he's very aware of his stats. Like he's very aware that he's not the strongest. He's not the tallest. He's not the fastest. He's not any of those things. He's the youngest in the year and he's got a mother and father that are vertically challenged. So although he likes being a goalkeeper, there's not really a lot of hope for that. <laughs> I don't know whether if for him within martial arts, he is in control of his own physicality and he feels powerful in his body. And something about that resonates with him. Um, as Prudence loves dancing, much to my dismay. <laughs> That's what she's drawn to. She she really loves that. She expresses herself through what she wears as well. Um, so we just kind of, since they've been tiny, just throwing them into anything. And if they decide that they're not really not really enjoying that anymore, they don't have to do it anymore. I just want them to find their thing, their outlet, their 
place where they feel free. I mean, Cal was like that with, you know, with his football. Um, that was football was football was God for him where he grew up. And for me, my everything was dance, any kind of dance. And I just would love for my children to find that. And I don't know how much expressive stuff they do. I mean, they they did like a full like theatrical performance um it bows um nativity like he had to full-on dance in it so there seems to be a lot more provision for it now maybe where we are here there's they're encouraging them quite a lot with it but um Bo also does street dance and what's really lovely about street dance is that there's lots of other males there yeah it's not just him and a bunch of girls there's probably more just as many boys as girls in this um group um which is really lovely and they all just rather than learning a syllabus they get to sit in a circle at one point in the lesson and they can just go in one at a time and the music's on and they just do their move whatever move they want to do and in this circle they were telling me that when prudence has just started if you don't want to go in the circle you don't have to and you just tap the floor and the next person goes this there was a couple of weeks where prudence always tapped the floor she wasn't sure, but by about her third week, she went in and started to, I said, you know what, that's that's my way of counteracting their, not lack of arts and dance, because I don't really know how much they're doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, more, more than I expected them to do. Um, and we've also made friends with a lovely lady that's a mural artist here. And she she was in worked in the fashion industry um with Burberry and we were dreadful with having kids with her in the industry. And as you know, as most arts industries and creative industries are, they don't make it easy for families. And she's got a passion for art and she's a mural artist, so she likes to do a lot of art and stuff with the kids. So um that's been really nice. So I'm just finding other outlets for them to sort of feel safe within. Um, yeah. yeah. And really you should know more about what's happening at school. But with the pace of life, ashamedly, with two working parents, you just put your trust and hope. And I think because I know that I'm counteracting anything else. You'll be good. You'll be good. Like I say, you and Cal are very you know, interesting characters with um, such a broad range of references between you. I think they'll be they'll be absolutely fine you know and I think and I think there's also something to be said to look at school the other way in that sometimes it's, it's good to to have to go through something that's not ideal as long as it's not too bad because it you know that's life we have to sometimes and I think that it's good to have those experiences too you know um there's a story I'm not going to keep you much longer because we've covered a lot but um I think I mentioned this to you but it's about so again, it's another one that Ken Robinson tells, and he wrote a book. It's, I think the book is the element in the end, and it's about you know finding your element in life and, and your passion because so many people don't or don't know where to start. And he interviews a lot of people about how they found the thing they went on to become great at or the thing they're passionate in life. And he interviews Dame Gillian Lynn as part of as part of that. And um, she told the story of in the 30s when she was going to school, how her, her mum was called into school to discuss her you know, her inability to sit still in class, her inability to to study, to concentrate, any of those things. And as Ken says in his talk, um, it'd probably be referred to or diagnosed as ADHD nowadays. But they referred it to a specialist because they couldn't get to the bottom of what what was going on. And they sat with the specialist for 20 minutes and um, 
after a while, he said to Mum, would you mind stepping out of the class? I need to have a word with you on your own for a second. So they asked Gillian to, to sit there. And as he left the room, he, he turned the radio on. So when they got out into the corridor, he stopped and turned around and said, just look at your daughter through the window. And she looked around and she was already on her feet moving to the music. And he said, there's nothing wrong with your daughter. She's a dancer. Get her to a dance school. <laughs> and um, and she said, you know, but when I walked in that dance school, it was the, the best experience of my life because it was a room full of people like me who needed to move to think, <laughs> you know. And I just thought that was the most beautiful story. And and as a father of a daughter who is so expressive and not that Frank's not, but Martha is just never stops moving. She's so physical and expressive and energetic and quite the natural performer and just so engaged. And it just fills me with passion. And, and I... You know, I don't have any expectations. I'm not, she's far too young, but I just want to make sure, like we said, that I give her every chance to connect with something that means something to her. But mm -hmm. I think stories like that in today's world are really important for parents to hear because there's so much out there about how, you know, that ADHD is this 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 demonised bad thing or it might not even be that. It might just be that they need a different form of expression. What's really interesting, you bringing up um, ADHD is actually um, two friends of mine that are... Um uh have been and are incredible leading ladies ones just working at the national theater in their production of hex they um much later well only very i'd say in the last five years have both been diagnosed diagnosed with adhd um one's got two two children i don't know how they came about their diagnosis but both of them have been i think it was through issues with uh depression and different things and eventually through going through the system they've both been diagnosed with adhd and they're actually very vocal about it on social media and it's so positive to see that um you know two leading west end leading ladies are you know actually celebrating their quirks you know so like they'll they'll should put a video of her bouncing around the dressing room and be like this is what an actress looks like with adhd um <laughs> you know between shows and then there was one that was like, this is what that, someone had filmed her. She was waiting for her scene um, just in rehearsals. And she was twitching and looking and tapping her feet and doing all sorts of stuff. And then she put that footage onto Instagram and like, this is an actress waiting for her scene wow. um, with, AD, you know, an actress with ADHD. Um, and it feels like they're doing some really, really positive work now that says just because you're given this, this branding, this, this label doesn't mean that you're not able to achieve. I mean, they have no idea, you know, they quite often it is missing girls um, because it's not always behavioural issues that we've been told from friends with girls who have had the diagnosis. Um, so it's so interesting that you especially bring that up, that it's not a hindrance. It doesn't matter if you have ADHD. Because it... I don't know, as a way of focusing the mind when it comes to theatre or dance or art or expression that, that isn't captivated within, you know, a maths lesson. Well, with and especially with the awareness of the condition and what's, what the strengths and, and weaknesses might be of that, um, you know, you're able to to manage it better, to find the ways to thrive for those personalities. And and uh, there's this whole chapter that's just organically happened because of people that I've met who had the same kind of re recent diagnosis. 
that's just all about neurodivergency, which is this blossoming knowledgeable field at the moment, which is incredible. And, and, it, and it's putting this whole positive light on it and teaching us all to be more aware, to be to be not tolerant, that's the wrong word, but to, to just to see the benefits of that and learn how to get the most out of those people and put them in a place where they can thrive. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. A guy, a guy called Ben Mottershead, who I've got on my next episode coming up, is a, he runs a design agency and he's ADHD. And he talks about this at length and he, he attributes a lot of the high percentage of people in the creative industries who have ADHD or, or similar conditions. He attributes a big part of that down to the, um, like the immediate reward, rapid rewards um, capacity. So yeah. in his case, you know, as a designer, throughout any given day, he's solving many, many problems uh, on a constant rate. So he said, you know, if you give me three weeks to study for one test, I'll fall apart. Like, I can't do it. That's not within my skill set as someone with ADHD. But as a designer, I thrive when I'm putting the right thing with problem solving. Yeah. He has a business partner. He said to me, I have a business partner who's dyslexic, so it's all the fun. <laughs> but um but he said the best but he said the great thing is we're both really open about it. We've got great awareness of each strength each other's strengths and weaknesses. So we've formed this really powerful team who pick up each other's weaknesses, you know, and I just I love that. And I just think it's very exciting actually to see more and more conversation around that. Yeah. I think like with um with dance and theatre, different personality types and different people with different types of, uh, I think we're all we're all somewhere on this broad spectrum, aren't we? I've definitely got quirks about myself that maybe lean, that lend well to me working within the arts, let's say. And you'll find certain people follow certain trajectories. Obviously it's based with talent as well, as well as personality types and disorders and all sorts, but you tend to see those with ADHD tend to go towards more towards the performance leading role sides and those that are more sort of towards OCD and organization hem towards the side of dance captain, organizing the shows, you know, all that kind of stuff, still performing, but within the capacity of problem solving. Okay, we've got 11 people phoning sick today. Um, how are we going to make Wicked the Musical work? I've got all this set to bring on. I've got all these parts in you covering, all these all these couples are together. How are we going to cover this? Which parts can we cut without the audience noticing? Which parts do we need? Who's going to do all those extra things? We're 11 people down. So then you get people that maybe are more academic brained or have slight OCD or any of those things are going off down that path, which isn't my path. And then you have the other path, which is maybe more expressive, more energetic kind of vibes. Male, from my experience, I head, head towards the more, uh, you know, the more central frontman role, let's say, of, within a piece. Mm-hmm. But but also that's amazing. But isn't that also a, a, a reflection of life in general, the way society functions? You know, we're all like you said, we're all on some spectrum somewhere, and and, and all the, and this, you know, I've been writing about. I, I didn't even plan to, but I've suddenly stumbled upon like links between psychopaths and creatives, and it's just fascinating. But <laughs> but there's all these overlaps, you know, um, and sometimes just because there's a symptom of a condition or a tendency doesn't mean you've got the thing, you know, that links with mm. everything else. What's lovely about the arts is that, and within theatre, I can speak, you know, personally of is that there's a place for everybody. There's no um, discrimination doesn't matter it, it doesn't matter at all 
there's 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 always a character that needs to be a bit short and fat there's always a character that needs to be a bit tall and look a bit goofy there's always a row of ensemble girls that need to all be the same height and look beautiful but everyone's doing their thing and everyone's there because it's their thing and that's okay and it doesn't matter what your preference what your sexual preference is off off the stage because on the stage as long as this is what's happening it doesn't matter there's an, and i think that's a really beautiful world to grow in as an adult and it isn't until you're thrust into other worlds you realize how protective you've been in this beautiful bubble where all sorts of things happen on tour all sorts of things happen within a theatrical company um and everyone comes to work the next day and that wouldn't happen in office yeah. You don't get five members of the ensemble having an orgy and then coming in the next day. <laughs> you only had to stop because somebody pooed on a bed. Like, you don't get that happening and people just come into work the next day and just dancing it out. Like, That's amazing. True story. Yeah. Is that really? <laughs> I was not involved in said orgy and I will not tell you which show it happened on. But, um, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I hope you're going to let me leave that in the show. <laughs> but and then everyone comes to work the next day and just gets on with it. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, and, and you know, yeah. you know, you know I, I'm sure I've told you in the past, but I'm a huge rest, professional wrestling fan, and um, yes, that, that reminds me of just the countless stories I love hearing and reading about. From, I mean, not as much these days, but more back in the sort of 80s and 90s. But there's, um, I interviewed. Mick Foley, who is one of the more eccentric characters, but just the loveliest, he's a total paradox. So he's done all these incredible stunts where he could have died at any moment, but he's the most sort of lovely, intelligent, academic, softly spoken guy. And um, and he always said that a wrestling locker room is not a place for a bigger of any kind. You know, it's like, it's, you know, you've got giants, you've got guys who are four foot tall. And it reminds me of a story that uh, I don't even remember in the 90s, there was a wrestler called Bret Hitman Hart. Yeah. And so Bret Hart tells a story in his autobiography, and this was back in the days when he was working for his dad's promotion in Calgary. And, you know, we're talking very kind of back in the day, on a shoestring, um, regional promotions, none of the glitz and glamour of like the WWE of today. So they'd travel around in his van with like 20 guys packed in between shows and on the icy roads and everything. And they broke down in the snow on one of these roads and with with that exact circumstance. Um and no, no, so I tell a lie, they pulled over at the side of the road and, and an old couple stopped to see if they were all right. And so he said, right, I'm I'm the, only, I'm the only one getting out of this van because they'll completely freak out if they see the rest of you guys in the back. And, you know, all, all in ring attire and everything else. And he went over to sort of today, no, it's fine. We're, we're all good. We're just stopping for some food or whatever. And um, and as a, as a wind up, they all burst out the back of the van, like all 20 of them in, in gear and everything. And the couple just got in the car and like <laughs> sped off. And just started, it just makes me think of what you said there and those kind of almost like microcosmic industries where it's a carnival, you know, type lifestyle. And I, I love that aspect. That's exactly what that is when you're on tour. Uh, that's, it's, yeah, it's utterly bonkers, <laughs> you know, and you either become sucked into it or you become very much the voyeur of everything that goes on. And, um, you know, it'll be during the show as you're dancing with somebody and someone said, did you hear about last night? What? What happened last night? And you're literally turning away to what happened last night? And that that does happen, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah. 
that's amazing i would i would i'd be disappointed if it didn't to be honest yeah and then all sorts of things so what usually when a company um when a company is having its last day and there's a changeover and there's a new cast starting or a show's closing it's like we have like a fun on the last matinee where people pull pranks on each other some of those are pretty good as well but um they're all stories that uh i, I shan't uh <laughs> with now but yeah all sorts of pranks go on brilliant well i mean i think i've pretty much covered everything i want to well, chat i don't know if i've told you what you need to know you, you know, know. You I, mean, really. I mean and then a lot more it's been fantastic um one thing i wanted to ask you is have you got any kind of basic tips i know i sort of message you to a similar end but for, let's say there's a parent who's never in their life encountered any anything along the lines of dance but but here's something like this show or, or comes across something like Ken Robinson and thinks I'd love to get my kids, you know, in front, in, in a dance hall or whatever it might be. Where, where would you go for a starting point? Is it a case of just looking up the local facilities? Or... Yeah, I, I mean, you, I can assure you that pretty much, I'd say 90% of church halls will have a dance school because not many schools have their own official studios they they use space so i would say that the first the starting point is it needs to be convenient um i mean a lot of schools offer after school dance clubs but when it comes to you know maybe children that before you know preschool um we start i would start by looking at church notice boards i know that sounds really nuts but um there's you i would say 90 percent of church halls there will be some sort of dance class whether it's ballet or street dance or or any of any depending on the discipline that they think they would like their child to do or um you know Bo would never have been great at ballet because he didn't want to ever want to follow instructions so I never pushed him towards any of that he started to start to move himself move on and off the floor he likes being on his head and I'm like okay you need to do something that's more expressive that's expressive from what you want to do um so it, I think it's a case of just finding somewhere that's local, somewhere that's convenient, and just that as a starting point. And talking to other parents that you might know if they are at school, oh, does any of, any of your kids go dancing? And then you'll find somewhere that's, you know, maybe the child already knows someone there, so they're not too shy to go because they know someone else from their class is there. Um, and, yeah, that's it, I guess, go from there. And and you might find that they want to do a certain type of dancing. They already know, or maybe they don't know. Um, there also there's loads and loads of like theatre groups now too. Mm -hmm. um, there's like your traditional stagecoach. Um, but I would always encourage. Not that I'm saying stagecoach is rubbish, but it's it's very expensive and um, it's a big. It's a big juggernaut. It's a big commercial juggernaut. You'll find small little theatre groups attached to dance schools all over the place as opposed to going maybe to, to as a first look to somewhere like that which I think really unfairly prices people out because it's expensive yeah. whereas if you look to local teachers and within you know church halls and leisure facilities you'll find probably some gold there that's for sure thank you so much to Stephanie for taking the time out of a hectic schedule as another person who's a relatively new parent Stephanie has a lot to juggle and these are the things that you you know you don't get to see in a person's life that makes their creativity it has to be shaped it has to be molded doesn't it we have to find ways to remain energized and inspired and effective despite all those things that we have to do in our life 
you know, that of course they involve creativity, believe me. Parenting requires a hell of a lot of creativity, but it's a different kind of creativity, isn't it? To what we have to employ in our day-to-day -day work and in our artistic endeavors. So anyway, big thank you to Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed some of the rockers stories there. And what a lifestyle that must be. That must be like, like I said, as a professional wrestling fan, there's just something uh, alluring and magical to me about the kind of carnival on the road, it's, you know, its own lifestyle isn't it and i love that and i hope you enjoyed it so cheers guys do check out the founding sponsor of the show who make this possible for free illustrationx.com for all the portfolios of their global range of animators and illustrators big thank you for anyone who's left a review or subscribed to the show recently please do that especially if you're a long-term listener and you like the show it's you know to keep this thing going and keep people listening and, and keep spreading the word about the work i'm doing around creativity it's a major help if you could leave a little review and um, recommend to a friend or share on social media. But reviews and subscriptions are the ultimate currency for podcasts. So please do that on your preferred platform if you get a chance. Thank you for listening today, guys. Have an awesome, creative week. And I will chat to you very, very soon.